Hallo, ich bin Fauci Grieleriv, Gugalic Song Stories, im Pod Grulig, für ein Bimische, Dir de Griemach, a Torst Zul in a Skielachen, ir Kuhl of Nanoren. Hallo und a very warm welcome to Gaelic Song Stories with me, Dear de Griem. This week I'm thrilled to be joined by folklorist, singer and writer Margaret Bennett. Hailing from the Isle of Skye, Margaret comes from a long line of traditional singers and pipers. Gaelic on her mother's side and Lowland Scots on her father's. She credits her family upbringing with her expertise in Scottish folklore and folk song, though she has a postgrad master's in folklore and a PhD in ethnology. Widely regarded as Scotland's foremost folklorist, she is known to wear her scholarship lightly. Margaret has also been a family friend for many years and so our conversation took on various twists and turns along the way. When I think back to the years when I studied at the RCS, I remember fondly the folklore course that Margaret delivered and all of us were enraptured by her lectures. Today I am equally as captivated and it gives me a great pleasure to share with you a charming conversation we had. We flip between stories and songs from both sides of the Atlantic, trying to make some sense of the numerous reasons that so many gales emigrated from Scotland. At the heart of them all is a person's voice and their lived experience. Where the history books tell one story, the songs offer us another. And through our conversation, we get a sense of their anger and loss. But we also feel their optimism in making a new start in a new place. A place doubly better. We pick up our story at the devastating Battle of Culloden, fought on the 16th of April 1746, a battle in all its complexities that I do not fully understand, but undoubtedly was the most significant conflict on Scottish soil that changed our cultural and political landscape forever. Thereafter, we take an emotional journey to the Carolinas through the American Wars of Independence before returning to Scotland and starting to unpick another tale of emigration, the potato famine that so sorely hit the Highlands. Finally, our journey takes us to Quebec, where Margaret herself lived for a year. She also spent many years in Newfoundland, and during this time she met with and became friends with descendants of those who had emigrated on those perilous journeys years before. And she has many of their family accounts recorded in precious conversations, some of which she is kindly sharing with us today. Margaret, it is a real pleasure and a delight to be with you this afternoon and thank you so much for meeting with me. I'm really honoured that you are giving your time and your knowledge on this incredible subject of immigration and emigration. It's been very close to my heart, but the other thing that makes this easy is that I've known you for a long time. Absolutely. And, uh, it's just lovely to, to meet up again. and After so long as well. And, and to see what you're doing. That you're following on, carrying on these st stories behind the songs and and singing them. Yeah, I think it's something that's always yes. fascinated me and it's something that was bound to with my mum's influence mm -hmm. on on my life and her steeping me in songs and stories predominantly from Sky. But I think through that I always got snapshots of story and... And certainly with regards to immigration, mm. that was something that I had a glimpse of. And perhaps as a child, a much more um, child friendly approach to the subject, because the reality is something a lot more brutal and really quite harrowing. And um, my, my own thoughts when I think on immigration from Scotland, I think instantly of the Highland Clearances and I think of Patrick Sailor and that abhorrent, horrible mistreatment of people. But of course, there are so many other um, strands that play into how the Gael came to be abroad and particularly in Canada and America of what's now the United States. Yes, very few of us don't have distant relatives in these distant lands. Mm -hmm. um, perhaps for a starting point, 
um, we could set the scene in a bigger context and go back slightly to the the time of the Battle of Culloden, which is a, a marker of a, a change, an absolute change in Highland culture totally. and drenched in songs. Yes, it's, it's totally. Um, I mean, they say that, in fact, it's probably true, there are very, very few songs of the time composed in Scots. There's maybe one, which is um, Johnny Cope mm-hmm. after the Battle of, of um, Preston Pans. But the others are all from the point of view of the Gael, from the heart and soul and mind of the Gael. The history books tell one story mm-hmm. and it's the official story, the one that's um, they want the world to know. But those who were there tell another story. And, you know, when you think, for example, of the lament of, of Christina Chisholm for her husband who's mowed down, it's just heartbreaking. Or I think more recently of a, when it flew into my mind when we had Syrian refugees come, our little community in Comrie had a day of hosting them and welcoming them to the community. And some of them had really escaped with the clothes they wore. They had little English, there was an interpreter, and we had to put on a keili. Mm-hmm. They danced and they had wonderful dances and costumes. And I wanted to somehow reach out to them and say, you know, you might think we don't understand your story, but can I share just one moment, a little, if you like, cameo of our story, which, like you, had dreadful atrocities. And this is a song written by a woman after Culloden and translated. Her translation is, they killed my father and my two brothers. They even stripped and raped my mother. And yet, if only Charles had prospered, the pain would be less. Now, Verevat mahers moge vraad, vilet mochine gerechet mochartjen, skrisset mochuich. They decimated my country and my kinsfolk. And I think, I said, now that was, yes, over 200 years ago, but that remains with us in our songs. Mm-hmm. And unless we can apply that absolute recognition of the state of humanity, and it still goes on. It still goes on. Um, we may never understand what it's like, but the songs express it so amazingly. Um, that So that was 1746. But it, it's a very complicated story, and for some, those who were Jacobites, um, those that were captured, they had to denounce that they had to swear allegiance to the king mm-hmm. which a lot of Americans say well how come you get all these Scots people fighting for the loyalists in America um, and you know etc I said well if you had a choice on the boat some of them changed from being Jacobites to not Hanoverians but they had they had to swear allegiance or they were going to be executed yeah. And then uh, there were others who changed from being Catholic to Protestant simply to save their lives. To save their lives. Yes. But it's very complex. And then as far as emigration go, a lot of, yes, a lot went to the Carolinas and to the South, but they weren't welcome in the South after the, after the American Revolution. So after that, from 1776 onwards, the emigration is really into Canada and Australia, of course. Right. And so Cape Breton becomes... The the destination then because one of the songs that I sing Hamiski in Alkershaw composed by John McCree from Kintail that is a question that sprung to my mind how did he end up fighting in North Carolina and I often wondered I I don't understand how this has come about but yes and likewise Flora MacDonald's husband and sons they all fought for the lawyers now that's a a rather curious one as well because Flora's family were Hanoverians but but she in her heart yeah she she had to sort of acknowledge the the clan loyalty which was to the king but in her heart she, she felt like so many others that this can't be right that um 
just to avoid having a Catholic king, we have a German Protestant, yes, he doesn't speak English far less Gaelic and he doesn't mm-hmm. understand and and our whole culture will be destroyed. And they felt it was wrong that they should have this change of the lineage, etc., just for the sake of... It, it's, I mean, it's very complicated. So brothers against brothers. John McCree, yeah. yes, from Kintail. But he soon realises, oh my word, how deceived I was. Yes, it's like the banning of the tartan. Uh-huh. The Campbells um, of Argyll, who were, you know, the, the bread alb, they, they fought for the king. Ah, but wait a minute. They too were banned from wearing tartan. Mm-hmm. The whole, everybody was banned unless they were going to be fighting in the army. The British army will adopt that dress. They are going to adopt the dress and take what was the skill of the Highland clansmen? It was the skill of combat and what were his ass what were his qualities? Mm-hmm. Loyalty until death. That's the ones you want to fight for us. Loyalty until death. So that when you get the siege of Quebec and General Wolfe, who by the way fought at Culloden as a young officer. Oh wow. Yes. He fought and had in his, among his troops, were Highlanders. And he took note in his journal how he had never seen such bravery on either side, Jacobite Uh or Han. And he took note that if ever he was promoted to being a general, he would have Highland soldiers fight for him. And so at the siege of Quebec, on the cliffs of Abram, which was the most horrendously dangerous he writes in his diary, we'll send in the Highlanders. What mischief if they fall. There's such great pleasure in having the enemy on your side. He had no liking for them. No. And, we, and yet our school history books glorify General Wolfe. Of course it did. Is that the, the great quote, no great mischief? That's right. That's where that comes what from. What great mischief if they fall? It doesn't oh. matter. I mean, you can send hundreds of them. And I'm afraid... If I might apply a modern application to it, when Bush and Blair agreed that we should invade Iraq, Mm -hmm. who did they send in? 800 Black Watch soldiers. First in. Always the first in. Yes. And so, Mm -hmm. in a way, it's thinly disguised. I'm not saying that out of resentment, but the reality is we have to really look at how the Highlander has been treated, not just in the past, and how and what the plight was when they were all cleared. And the, it went on not just for decades, but it went on not really until well into the end of the 19th century. There were clearances, waves of them mm-hmm. for different reasons. And, and when the new regime, when the clan system fell and the, there was no longer any... Um, hereditary right to own land and when mm. those that were Jacobites lost their land it was given over eh, some to lowland um, huge sheep farmers or estate workers friendships were very important it's who you know um, and ruthlessly um, they, they thought nothing of clearing people you mentioned the Duke of Sutherland yourself oh my word and somehow when you read it's his, his, the the man, the right hand man, if you like, Patrick Seller. Patrick Seller. Wow, burning houses, elderly people in being dragged out. I read a quotation mm. in Anne Lauren Gillis's book, Songs of Carrots. Yes, and uh, I, I believe it, it might have been Alexander Mackenzie who wrote on it, saying that. He he witnessed, I think, um, an elderly woman yes. up to the age of a hundred yes. in her bed, and they were pleading 
don't burn the house. You know, we need to get it out. Yes. And they said, let the women burn. Yes, that's right. Uh-huh. And women in labour. This I'm reading you a transcription of a recording made in 1978 from a, a Donald Beaton recorded in Sky. And his people had gone through this terrible clearances. And he says, well, he said, it was a brutal kind of a work. When you think of the poor people, how they suffered, putting them out of their houses, putting houses on fire in case they'd go back when they'd have nowhere to go. It was disgraceful. When I think of what they suffered, I don't think any other body in this country or in the world suffered the likes of it. Without warning, they'd come into your house. Get out of here. They put a match to your house. Burned everything. 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 Where were they going to go? Well, some were sent abroad. And the ones that wasn't sent abroad, they were lying out in the open. They were allowed to die in the open. Women crying. One woman died in childbirth. And the man begged the factor to leave her in the house. She was going to have a child. But he wouldn't. He put her out. She gave birth to a baby in a wood. Of course, the baby died and she herself died. And there was another woman, close to 100, Mrs Chisholm, yes. And she was burnt to death. And when the factor told her she was in the house, they were waiting, the factor said, put a match to it. And this is it. Side time, the old bitch was dead. They, they, were, they were merciless, merciless. Mm-hmm. Um, and that book is heartbreaking reading. Mm-hmm. And, and I think then... When, when you understand or have a glimpse into that, into these stories and, and not just the one instance, but so many, like you say, waves of immigration, but waves of yes. brutality, you brutality. really, really get that sense of pain coming through in you the do. songs. I, uh, in fact, there's a little film of this man, a man I met in Mull. Uh, actually, you may know his niece, who's a lovely singer, Janet MacDonald or Janet Tandy. Mm-hmm. Lovely singer. You probably meet her at the mall. Well, her uncle, Angus Henderson, was the blacksmith. And he had listened to the stories of his grandparents, how they were cleared from a, an area of Ardnamurachan. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was a, a ter- another terrible clearance. And how areas of Mull, horrendous treatment. And he said to the man who was interviewing, and he had a, had a there was a, a film cameraman with him, and he said, I'll take you to the grave of the factor. And he named him. And they stand over this grave, and he said, that's where he's buried. And if anything more than nettles grow on his grave, I'll tear them out with my own bare hands for what he did to us. Wow. And that was recorded in 1978. Oh, really? Yes, Yes, but he was talking about 100 years previously, maybe, uh. or a little more. But it, the memory lies because the whole the whole social order changed. Yeah. I think it's probably changing so rapidly now that it'll fade if we don't keep it alive. But we don't want to keep it alive for resentment. We want to keep it alive because, well, politicians don't read history. No. They don't. They make decisions. They make that, it. That, um, uh-huh. Or they don't seem to read history. We think of Ireland. The potato yep. famine is Ireland, but Scotland had, if not such a huge scale, but equal poverty and terrible destitution. And clearances. So, where, where at the time of the potato famine then? Because I think that's something for myself. I don't know so much about it at all. Because I said that I think immediately of, of Patrick Seller, the Highland oh, yeah. clearances. But actually, the potato famine is is to my mind less documented. Yes, it was. It, it, and yes, it's, you're absolutely right. And it's a funny thing when you go to America and meet lots of Irish immigrants and there were thousands they're still very proud of their Irish background and many of them can tell you my people came during the famine mm-hmm. but and the famine of course was caused by this potato blight the mm-hmm. the, the, the greenery came up and the, but when they lifted them they stank to high heaven of rot and there was nothing so but this happened started about 
there was an earlier one, but the main one was 1846 to 56. But they had become so dependent on the potato. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in, in the new la- in in some of the areas, they were given an allocation of potatoes. They were so dependent that they were starving. Yeah. Now, they were growing, Ireland was growing crops of oats and wheat, and it was being stripped and exported to England without, and, and people starving in their own land is yeah. very strange. In Scotland, the potato famine was probably at its worst in the outer islands. Okay. Lewis was terribly badly hit. So was North U- Harris, North Uist, and all down the outer islands. And it was, if we take, say, Lewis as a case in point, yes. um, the island was owned by James Matheson. And he had been a, a wealthy merchant uh, dealing in tea and opium in the Far East. Okay. And he brought back a fortune to Scotland and, and he bought the island of Lewis in about 1841. And, oh, he would deal it wherever he... He was obviously very good at it. And um, he was from... Oh, I have heard that because Stornoway, the the buildings in Stornoway, a lot of them were built on money from the opium trade. Is that correct? It was <laughs> some of the... Some, yes. But he bought the castle, for example. Ah, yeah. But... There was no castle when he bought it, the the island. But he bought it at a pretty bad time because, first of all, the Poor Law Act came in in 1844. Now, the Poor Law Act was to protect the poor. And um, here he is with an island full of tenants. They had plots of land, the Crofts, and they had a run rig system. They, but they, they had the right to cultivate, but they had to pay rent. Hmm. to the landlord. That's how he made his money. And the rent was levied at a certain level. It seemed very little, but it was about to rise everywhere. And that's, they were cleared, most of them, they couldn't pay the rent. The Poor Law Act placed an obligation on large landowners that they had to be responsible for the welfare or the well-being of the tenants, of the tenants who were paying them the rent. So that if, but it wasn't, so when the crop failed, 1846, they might have, they couldn't sell potatoes. They had, they had to, they were starving. So there was a government scheme, actually. Government schemes always sound great. Oh, they're going to rescue us. We've just been looking at plenty government schemes the last (laughs) two years. Yes, exactly. But this particular one, would send boatloads of meal, oatmeal, mm-hmm. to the islands, to the different, so Stornoway was receiving, and it would be administered by um, James Matheson's factor, whose name was John, he was, he was a Mackenzie. And they were given an allocation of meal per family, per person, in exchange for, it wasn't, there's nothing free, or there wasn't, in exchange for labour, Stornoway Castle was built on famine labour. Oh, wow. All these walls, the estates, the, the, some of the manses for the churches built with masons working, stone workers on famine labour. Oh. Um, and so it, 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 there was always something in it for the landlord. However, um, this was happening year after year and people were at rears in rent, some of them quite considerably. So what happened was the factor decided he would serve them an eviction notice if they didn't pay the arrears of rent. But, of course, they couldn't. And uh, they pleaded that they might be able to maybe... But he said if they didn't pay the rent, they they would be offered an opportunity to emigrate. Now, the opportunity to emigrate was to Quebec. Right. And what would they be offered? Well, it sounds very good on paper. A land Uh grant of 50 acres or sometimes 100 acres. And it would be close to water and um, cultural facilities to to churches, etc. The reality was this was land that was part of a scheme by the British government. A group of businessmen had bought six million acres in a part of Quebec 
and were selling it off at great profits. But there was a huge area that wasn't fit for anything. Anything. It was absolutely tangled, bush, brush, um, swampy. And it would be as accurate to say that they were near facilities as to say that St Kilda is near the Covent Gardens. Wow. <laughs> it was, and, and they said the woods were teeming with wildlife, but they didn't tell them what. What like wildlife yes. it was. And so some of them, very few of them, would you believe, very few of them really wanted to go. So he encouraged them by saying, if you don't go, we will forbid you to cut peat. Oh, so not to heat only their homes and yes, and to cook over yes. it and everything. And they were reduced to eating shellfish. However, the landlords, as in the same Mackenzie and others too, they claimed what they called the eudal rights. That's when the tide goes out. That's when you pick the wilks, as you know. Yes, he said that the landlord owned the land. All the way to the edge of sea at the low tide. Yeah. So they were, they, so they, they were even grudged a few wilks and even the limpets, which are as tough as leather. They it's, were reduced to starvation. It, it's horrible. There's so many levels in that where at first, yeah. you know, you're building the manses and the castle yeah. and famine labour. It's so demoralised. Oh, it's dreadful. And then to be packaged up yes. in this scam and it's it's lies and then well yes exactly and I will read to you a little quotation from the speech that Sir John Trevelyan he was the government official in charge of this wonderful scheme now nobody said anything about the land and how they got this land because it was so bad that they couldn't sell it to anybody but the British government wanted a scheme Mm -hmm. so here's what he said in parliament This is 1851. Ethnologically, the Celtic race is an inferior one and attempts to disguise it as we may. There is naturally no getting rid of the fact that it's destined to give way to the higher higher capabilities of the Anglo-Saxon. And he said that whether whether the Celt was languishing in rags and idleness in Ireland or in filth in the Hebrides, there was one solution. And he said... Emigration to America is the only available remedy for the miseries of this race. That's what he said about all Celtic people. It's such a strong propaganda. Wow. And then the following year, when he he gets the scheme, aided, by the way, by an Highlander who was in a well-paid position to help him, Mm -hmm. um, he, the following year, and this appeared in the Fife's, Fife Shire Journal, a Fife newspaper, he said, he reported that now we contemplate with satisfaction the prospects of flights of Germans settling here in Britain in increasing numbers. They're an orderly, moral, industrious and frugal people, less foreign to us than the Irish or Scottish Celt. Sir John Trevelyan, 1852. That's the backdrop to the emigration of the people from the Outer Islands to Quebec. And it's a good thing they didn't read it because they were mon- most of the they were monoglot gales. Mm-hmm. They, they would, yes, some went with a minister who could, or a teacher, because, um, but when they got there and they took, they were, they were given, this was Matheson, or the landlord's role was to give them some kind of grant to he paid the passage, perhaps, but there were schemes where they had to pay it back. Yes, oh. yes, and they they were given. There was um, organisations that they had women knitting. There was an embroidery school in Harris. Would you believe? There was oh knitting socks. They were doing things, and they were going to be sold. But when they got there, they had to. Well, it took six weeks and the voyages were just, oh, my word, my word. I recorded several elderly people in Quebec. Mm-hmm. I, I was there in 1976 for a year. So if you think that's only, well, it's about 120 years after the voyage. But some whose grandparents had been on it. In living memory. Yes, yes. Wow. And they had talked about it by the fireside. 
Interestingly, they didn't dwell on the miseries of what they had left. And this was possibly the best thing possible. That's an incredible display yes. of their, their nature. And yes. Their, mm-hmm. It's also uh, maybe a, an indication of the fact that they had, no, they had no preparation of what was going to meet them. They were promised a house. When they got there, it was a very crudely built log cabin and yeah. the snow came in and drifts inside the house. Of course. And it, it goes very, very cold in Quebec. Oh, my word. 20 below, 30 below, Something 40 they'll, below. They'll never have experienced before. Never. Mm-hmm. They brought with them woolen blankets. They brought with them um, very little in the way of tools. Some of them had never seen um, woodworking tools because Lewis, for a start, has very few trees. Yes. There would be a carpenter who'd built ships, so he would be there. There was a miller and there was a wheelwright among them, so they could bring skills with them. And in fact, they could quarry stones and create um, this. They were so resilient. They were crofters. And um, I think it's a marvellous testimony to the versatility of the crofter. Absolutely. <laughs> to this yes. day, you know, you can't depend on the weather forecast. <laughs> <laughs> we might laugh, but, you know, it, today was a perfect example. It was going to be sunny. Really? Where uh-huh. was it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they had to uh, adjust and mm-hmm. some of the roles changed, but they had incredible songs about it. So um, this brings to my mind mm-hmm. the song Oh Yes. Oh yes. Which tells Gallan. Yes. And now they were going on to Manitoba. It, it was the same wave of emigration. Yes. Manitoba. They praised to us Manitoba, a land without coal or without mm-hmm. peat or with anything. Mm-hmm. And um, they were hardly prepared for the isolation the snow could bring. You can get six months of that snowy winter in Quebec. Yeah. When, I, when I lived my year there, the first snow fell on the 10th of October. <laughs> and I, I remember I had hung a washing. This is not, this is the novice. I'd hung a washing. <laughs> I'd spent eight, I had spent eight years in Newfoundland, but I hadn't seen anything the likes of this. H. So I hung the washing out on a nice sunny morning. It started to snow and I thought, mm, I'm not going out there to get my washing. There was 10 inches at the end of the day. However, the next day there was a foot and the next thing the washing was vanishing and then I saw the pegs peeping up and I never got it until March. (laughs) Thank goodness it wasn't every stitch I owned but a couple of towels on the line. But it was rather a measure of of what it might have been like for them. And some of them describe, um, well, they made their furniture pretty crudely they had to clear trees for um and how they they would put the baby in a little cradle under the table with a blanket over it in case the snow would drift onto the little you know yes oh it was so that soon they learned ways of dealing with it though they were Mm -hmm. so very the children helped even tiny little children could gather moss and fill in the the logs and but the resilience and the spirit but they never lost the longing, longing, longing for the homeland. For the homeland. And the people who left and be, who saw them go, they wondered for a century what happened to them. Because, of course, the communication must oh, have been, yes. if Hard, anything, ha- you know, yes. so entirely. Yes, and I think that's where you get that wonderfully poignant um, song that is very, oh, you'll hear it a lot in in Nova Scotia and Cape Breton, you'll hear it on the pipes, Fuatachnangale, mm-hmm. composed by Henry White. Now, he was born during the potato famine and he composed his song um, after, just from listening to the old people talking by the fireside. And oh gosh, how he paints this picture of the lamenting of seeing them go. Gurmisha <laughs> 
silva kluchach strain rainuach karam fuatach gefaten ul harhuanten am ferin kai horstupa sorsuestanefe how sad i am lamenting the state of the homeland the old honest people Worthy, courageous, landlords evicted them far overseas. Their lands were taken from them and given up to the deer. The deer came soon after the sheep, you see, Mm. when these great new landlords discovered that what a fantastic playground, sports ground we're living in. (laughs) And as one, actually an old man I recorded in Newfoundland said to me, my people on the Isle of Canna and in Moidert couldn't shoot a deer, but they would go to prison. Wow. Which is right. They couldn't take a salmon, but it was against the law, and that is right. But he said the great thing about the new country was we had freedom for that. We could kill the deer and put, and lift and, and fish for the salmon and have a plentiful supply of food. Quebec was slightly more difficult because every time they, they, they were using bows and arrows. Wow. Not, by the way, learned from the native peoples, although they did befriend them and they were very helpful to them in teaching them a lot of skills. But that the, the, the Hebrideans were very skilled in archery, mm. very skilled in archery. So they had the skill. But... Yes. You hear that in a lot of the praise songs. Yes, you know, yes, the, yes. With the Clive and then the with the bow and arrow. Yes, and that's it. Certainly that's the praise, right. The chief clan chief praise songs. Yes, well, that's right. Well, so they had the skill, and but what they didn't realize is when they shot a deer, which was easy, there was plenty of, they couldn't even get to to, to it. But the wolves were in tearing it apart, so they had to clear oh. land and wait till they got land. They they. The land they got, by the way, their hundred acres was covered in thick, dense forest, mm-hmm. with maybe two or three meters from the house was cleared, and the little small house measuring sixteen feet by twelve. That was the house, and um, so it was very different to what they thought they were going to. Absolutely. And um, if, if I can step back a moment, yes. when you were talking about the deer and yes. how people weren't allowed to shoot the deer in the wrong class um, th- that brings to mind another song that I'm fond of and I sing when of course the the or was prohibited from from hunting on the land and fishing in the rivers again and, and his song is a protest of the the new policies that were yes. being brought in. Would that have been probably the same time then? Yes. This, uh-huh. the, the, oh, absolutely. And and it lasts, it, it lasts till our present day. Yeah. If you and I want to shoot a deer, um, say we were inclined, or if your parents, um, well, you would face a prosecution for yeah. poaching deer or, or salmon. Um, because it's ever been so that they these have been the huge sports ground. There are mm-hmm. thousands of acres. Um, Hamish Henderson's song, actually, which is in Scots, uh, "The Men of Noidert, when they fa- there's this dialogue between Lord Brockett, who owns this massive estate after World War Two, by the way, uh-huh. and and he wouldn't allow returning soldiers to plant a row of potatoes. Wow. He says, ye highland swines, these hills are mine. This is all Lord Brockett's land. You bloody reds, Lord Brockett said, what's this you're doing here? I, I mean, he, he's, he's, because he, anyway, we'll leave that one aside. <laughs> but the deer, no, they weren't, a, but the deer had a, a second a terrible effect on the crofter. First of all, they've been squeezed onto smaller wee strips mm-hmm. of land. There are plenty of counts in sky near your own family's home and crofts surrounding you, where families where once maybe there had been one croft, there were then four or six or eight. So there were tiny pieces of land, and they were usually a strip beside the shore where the, and the, because that that freed up far more for these beautiful estates for the deer, and they could have they could. Have a shooting season, the stag season, and the and the and the etc. 
and they would bring in a lot of money because they could they could invite wealthy sportsmen to pay the shooting and they could hire the local skilled healthy lads to be the stalkers to carry the gear to handle the ponies gralach what they shot and maybe etc etc um, and there was plenty of meat left over for their dogs um, that still happens. Yeah. That still happens. So, um, but for, if you, I was looking at the Napier Commission, which was finally uh, the, the government inquiry, if you like, mm-hmm. in 1882, which was going to actually finally ask the crofters. And a lot of them said, well, they've got, they don't have fencing around their little piece of land and the deer come and they eat their newly planted corn. Mm. So they've only got an acre of crops and the deer come and you can, if you don't, so he said some of them are, they've got people watching the whole night long. So they would allow them to, to because they, they the deer would just gobble up that. They're not satisfied with their own thousands of acres of grazing. And so that that made it even more difficult for the crofter to have a, even sustenance for his own family. Would some of those crofters then have quite gladly chosen to emigrate given those circumstances then? The younger ones tend to, and, and especially young men who, for say a family of half a dozen, well, how are they going to divide that little piece of land amongst mm. three or four brothers? So if if there was an opportunity of emigrating and some of them, the whole shipload were willingly going, they were young, thinking, well, maybe I can make a living here. I could send money back home, which was the big Irish thing. I'll make a living, you know, I'll get rich. The streets of New York are paved with gold. Yeah, right. I'll send <laughs> yeah. money home. Um, they would hope to send money home to just even help. Um, and so they would go out of a spirit of adventure. Mm-hmm. Um and some of them, yes, they, they did okay, and they they got land grants and did very. They were very very hard working. There was no point in going if you weren't. Um, so the ones that went, say, in the early eighteen hundreds, they tended to to have gone willingly. The because ones, I think Ferroc MacNeachgan's Counting Sing a whole verse of it. It's so lovely. Yes, go on. It's just so. And of course he's reflecting on yeah. not being able to use his gun and then by the end of that song he says... I'm going to make my way. Yes, there's no oh, point. Yeah, that's right. And even, even well, this is a bit earlier, Dunhoban uh-huh. he, he sort of emigrated in a way, went to Edinburgh oh, yeah. and joined. They were looking for, well, they were known as policemen now. They needed two, two types of labour in Edinburgh. This is the 1780s, so 17, well, no, 1760s, after Culloden. They needed... Well, if they were going to be cleared, they could no longer live on the land the way they did. Mm-hmm. He had a, a song to his gun um, because the gun, yes. He, 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 yes, he would be stalking the deer and he was in the, he was in the employment, if you like, of Campbell of Bridalban. Well, he went to Edinburgh and they were looking for people to join the guard, the police, big house, yes. and Edinburgh's full of hills and they needed sedan chair carriers. What? Yes, sedan chair carriers. So if you, yes. Oh uh, my goodness. Yes, and because the Highlanders are used to climbing hills and can run up and down the hills with a load, like a stag, and, <laughs> and help them, they, they're strong and they, they can manage the hills. They're, they're designed to climb hills. Well, there's plenty of hills in Edinburgh. And why would they need sedan chair? I think they brought back sedans, actually. The only there are more bicycle sedans now in Edinburgh. But, uh, yes, but, yes, yes. But for example, say... 
a university professor or a lawyer or a solicitor needed to get from, say, the advocate's library to the courthouse or, or whatever, maybe that's a bit close, or they needed to get from the new college, the, the Divinity College, to the, the other one, the old college, in a short space of time. There would be a sedan chair carrier or sedan chair carriers waiting. He would hop aboard the sedan and they would rush him off to where he was going. And well, he wouldn't arrive breathless and and in course. a sweat, he would then do whatever the business. So the, so people were, but of course, Tunico Ban, it's another subject altogether. <laughs> he and he and his wife were, they cut quite a figure. She made mm-hmm. whiskey. And, oh, and wow. It, it, yes, in the cowgate. And when she, when she was confronted, she said, it's only for our own use. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there you go. Anyway, where were we? The deer. The deer. The deer, yes. The, the situation with the deer wasn't going to change. They were not going to say, right, we'll give you a bit of our big estate, we'll take the deer off and we'll fence them. That wasn't going to happen. And um, they were just destitute. And there's reports of, of them arriving in Quebec in the most awful state. Now, before they could actually go to the land allocated to them, they had to, they had to if you like, check in, like a medical check, and they stopped on a little island in the, um, they would sail up the, the Gulf of St. Lawrence and a little island called Grosile. And it I was a quarantine, I- yes, a quarantine island. And if they saw, you see, if there was fever aboard, like typhoid, they had to raise a yellow flag. Oh. And if there was a yellow flag aboard, they had to stay on board the ship until they had an all clear and a lot of them really died there and um, there's about 17,000 emigrants buried in the, on Grossil Scotland 17,000 yes um, and some priests died there too administering they were just so absolutely totally they were saints really yeah. uh, offering to help and then if they had an all clear in the quarantine area they were then put on a ashore in Laval, Quebec, or near Montreal, and they were or Quebec City, and they would take the train wherever they to a main station and they would be met there. And the ones that got this awful land I told you about yeah. they were shown the land grant and um, oh gosh me what a disappointment. So actually when they talked about their immigration, they had plenty of trauma from the minute they left on the ship the quarantine, the awful things that happened, the storms, their songs rather changed into songs about the the voyage. Yeah. And uh, there's one, um, they, they, they can describe the ship and, or even Ilan Biafsuntach, which yes. is one of them. And sometimes you hear that song very fast now, but in fact it was, it was really one to, Encourage. It was one to lift the spirits. spirits. There's nothing worse when you're in a bad situation than to keep talking about your miseries. Come on, boys, we've got to think about this. You've got to, you've got to try and keep cheerful. Would, would you sing a, a piece of and then it goes on um, and actually I can give you a, a recording if you want of the, the old man I heard it oh, singing that. that with his sons at the table and, and they turned it into a, a milling or a walking song well that, I've that, only uh, ever known it as yes. Like which really sounds, upbeat, which sounds very jaunty, and it yes. sounds almost too jaunty, almost too jolly for what they went through. And he had a song which, oh gosh me, the he talks about the new mast they got at Greenock, and and it takes a fine sailor to you know it's, these kind of things. There's another verse where he said that um, when they were in the really in the teeth of a gale, he prayed to the Lord that he would. And and he thought of it, he said, I thought of my mother and my sweetheart. Mm-hmm. In other words, they're all 
the lads together on the ship and suddenly it's so dangerous you think oh my mother's got to that'll break her heart and what about my sweetheart will I ever see her again because usually the plan was she'd come later and they'd marry of course they didn't necessarily so, take the sweethearts with them which is just a, another layer of heartbreak yes yeah. yeah, <laughs> it? Oh, it is another layer of heartbreak yes yeah. these partings and then there was always the thought well you know what etc is somebody else going to go off with it I mean that's putting it very bluntly um, yes, but yeah. um, all these emotional things are that's what makes our songs so I think that, that to sing them my mother used to have a phrase you have to get inside your song mm-hmm. and then when you do that you, you really have to think imagine you were on that boat imagine your people had been cleared off imagine your wife had been thrown out of the house when she's about to go into labour. Yes. I realise when you asked me, did some go willingly? Mm Mm-hmm. And they did. And also, a lot of them at the end of the day, when asked, and I've asked this question, how do you feel now about the emigration? Mm. And they nearly all say, well, they did have a better life. Really? Yes. Um, The first generation, of course, had the hardest. There was one family I recorded, and I can give you actually the sound of his voice. His name was Angus Morrison from Harris. And his mother was a girl of 13, slightly later than the famine, but they had fallen in arrears with the rent and there was a lot of them being cleared from Harris well into the 1880s. And they had very little choice. And they they had to sell their cow and their little boat they had. They had to sell that to pay for the food to have on the passage. And um, the, oh my word, she describes it. And I... Oh my word! She desc- she can describe the boat as well. This with so lady. She she was born in eighteen seventy six, and I recorded her in nineteen seventy six. Wow. So it, it, I said to her, the experience didn't kill her because she and she lived to one hundred and seven. Oh. But she described what it was like and the hardships. Oh, she said, my mother cried every day for Harris. She oh. cried every day. And my grandfather, he was with us. He was an old man when he emigrated. And he and he said, but we had, but they had people there that, that they were very close-knit communities. And they they were used to have a community where people helped each other. Mm-hmm. They'd cut peats together. They'd harvested harvest together. together. Well, they did the same in Quebec. And when they were building a house, they had what they call a, they had a, they would have a, 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 a bee, they called it a, they would have a, 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 so they would, they would raise the, the timbers together, they would put the roof on together. They were very close in it, but oh my. How, how would that then play into the integration of communities that were there already? Because I think it, they became very well integrated. Yes, they did. They did. There was a certain... Actually, the, the French Canadians, had, there wasn't a lot of French in that area, although later on they, they started coming in and saying, well, mm-hmm. Quebec is French. So, But they forget that that land was cleared by the Scots. Mm. The history in that area is now kept alive by young French Canadians. Well, not so young now, because they recognised that the land was... Car- the farms were carved out by Gaelic-speaking Highland settlers, mm-hmm. and they they didn't they they did um, learn from the, the, the native peoples. They were the Abenaki, and they showed them how to make snowshoes and how to how to track down an, a, a moose and how to kill it etc and how to sustain how to they, they they could tan leather already but they learned all this and they, they learned a lot of skills there was respect i mean yeah. one one old man i spoke to he said you know they used to say that maybe there was witches among them so that if they asked you <laughs> to, to give them 
lend your horse, you would just lend your horse. Or, uh, but, yeah, yeah. Okay. but that's not any different to what there was here. I mean, I, I, I recorded people in Sky who said so-and-so and in Tyree, mention of witchcraft. It was mm-hmm. it was part of their culture. Of course. So they yep. didn't actually think this was strange. Um, they, there was a gradual intermarriage with the French. Mm. For the Lewis and Harris people, it was quite cautious to begin with because of the, all the French were Catholic and all the immigrants from the outer islands were, well, really, they were Presbyterian, but more or less like the Free Church, uh-huh. with a slight variation. They called themselves mm-hmm. Presbyterians. But then they said, you know, they have their their ways and we have ours. But they did intermarry and there was a great kinship between them. There was more in common than mm-hmm. than people imagined, um, and they describe how they would. Yes, they began to learn their the language. Some a lot of them became fluent in French. Mm-hmm. They had no idea that it wouldn't be English who would take over their language. It would be French. Yeah. Yes, and then um, you can. I've got a recording of a man, and he starts off. Je suis Kenneth MacIver. Mes grands parents sont venus ici de l'île de Louis, hein? and and he tells the whole thing in French. Wow, that's yes. incredible. Mon, mes parents sont sont venus au monde dans l'île de Louis, dans les îles Hebrides, dans le nord de l'Écosse. Les Métis. Let's get back to the songs. When, how did they integrate and how did they feel? I think that one man, um, one of the bards in Cape Breton, more or less summed it up for a lot of them. He said, uh, yes, they, they miss aspects of the, the beloved land and the they tried to keep the Cayleys going and then certainly they've done well in Cape Breton. Mm-hmm. They really have the old songs and the dances and the fiddle tunes. But he says, Archipiargo Dubelcha. It's a place that's better for me, twice as good for me. In other words, there there's a generous spirit of the terms in which they settled. And they had land that was not restricted. They could go to the rivers and they could fish. Mm-hmm. They worked with, oh, the most incredible hard, hard work pulling together with their neighbours. And lovely descriptions, too, of the French and the Gales putting a roof on a house or a barn together. And then the French taught them how to make maple syrup and maple sugar. Oh, wow. The French taught them how to log. They didn't know how yeah, to cut timber. Yeah. So they did learn a lot from each other. Mm-hmm. And um, they could earn a little extra money by going to the lumber camps. There's quite a few songs about that. And oh, yeah? There's a few macaronic songs, too. Uh, yes. Would you, would you have any Gosh, to mind? Um, <laughs> well, I... I, I I'm, I'm going to hop over to Newfoundland for the macaronic ones. Okay. There was, there was, there was. I, I, actually, I recorded this from an, an old, an old French lady, who's she, her people had intermarried with the Scots, and um, je vais vous chanter une chanson, une chanson menterie. Na pas parole de vérité, je veux pas de ma vie. A rum for tadalienum, a rum for tadalie, a rum for tadalienum, and rum four times a day. And so <laughs> they would all laugh together and they, they loved to have fun. They recognised the wisdom. And actually now it's psychologically essential that we have some time to restore our minds and our bodies our souls it mustn't be all work but to sing together Mm -hmm. singing is good for you it's so good for you yes isn't it and so this singing together um and they i mean we talk now if you're you're a a performing professional musician and you always talk about the if you like the the set list Mm -hmm. and you don't want six real downers in a row (laughs) so 
they had this idea of somebody would come in, you know, you'd they loved the songs of the old country and the ones of the new. The ones of the new, I mean, the Bard MacLean from Tyree who emigrated and they wrote that song, Kalyagruamach. And oh dear me, it's, it's very gloomy, gloomy, gloomy. However, <laughs> he sustains himself through verse after verse of this gloominess but then there's a wee flicker of hope and you think oh mercy me and he <laughs> does stay and I mean it, it, so it's a but a lot of them say you know we must look at the best that this land has given to us um, and the, of the Gaelic macaronic songs oh this is a funny one an odd one a chalin goin von gakumi, not at all and fun with you. Hammy howled and brash and jing, and that's the way we used to be. You are bonny, you are bright, you are handsome and polite, although you are so very nice, I don't intend to marry you. A chalin goin von gakumi, not at all and fun with you. It's got that Scotch snapping. Yeah. And that reels just be. And they retained the Strasbe, which hadn't really turned. You had, you didn't have that. Sus- we, when we were at school, that Strasbe was much more elongated. Well, very kind of East Coast style of Strasbe. They never heard that, and they had and you can see the step dance. Yes, I played a recording of a beautiful playing of Ron Ganelli's playing Astraspe and the fellow said my heavens you'd have to be airborne to dance to that <laughs> because they were used to this very close to the floor solo dance Astraspe or it could be in pairs or whatever uh-huh. set dancing yes and a much lighter because they weren't bound by what had actually been an Italian influence in Scottish oh. styles of fiddle music. We're going all over the place yeah, here. We are, but it's but fascinating. It's, but it's such a, 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 such a fertile area for a whole field of wildflowers to grow up and, yeah. and a glorious blossom that creates the picture, which yeah. it can be little bits or... Um, it's, it's so nice to, to hear these songs that are lighter and fuller of uh, fuller full of hope now yes. after such a, oh, yeah. a difficult time and then for that for that integration and uh, uh, community spirit and, and for that um, yes. uh, for that hope to start shining through is yes. lovely. How did they feel generations afterwards? Well, the woman who left Harris at the age of 13 and remembered her mother crying every day, she too, at 100, longed for the homeland. She would never see it. And that nostalgia was passed on to the next generation. Her son, Angus, who was born, he was the same age as my father, 1917, was born. And he said that he was determined that he would work hard, he would earn his fare and he and his wife French, Canadian wife Mm -hmm. Catholic, which is a lovely comment and she uh, they were wonderful, great team he would take her to the Isle of Harris and he'd never been either, so he went to the Isle of Harris, the very community, there were so many Morrisons he said, (laughs) the taxi driver was a Morrison, the hotel driver was a Morrisons, and they took him he said Crab, he said, was the name of the place that his mother left and cried and her grandmother heartbroken. And he said to me, Crab, have you ever seen it? He said, a sheep couldn't have made a living there. Oh. And he said, <laughs> cured his nostalgia in a one <laughs> But he loved Harris and he mm-hmm. loved the language and he was one of the last speakers. He spoke until, until well, he died at 92 Wow. But he, um, yes, he realised that there was a reason, um, but it was the way it was done. Yeah. It was the, it was the cruelty of the way it was done and what they put them through to do it. Yeah, that was absolutely. It. Well, Margaret, thank you so, so much. Oh, gosh, I don't know if I... 
Oh, uh, no, I mean, hopping around like a, a grasshopper. <laughs> but I think I think this subject, we, you can't go in a linear line with this. <laughs> it's just there are so many different accounts and different experiences that come into play. And I think what you've given me is, is such an amazing well, amount of knowledge. Well, and a bit of a, a brochen. <laughs> brochen. But what I love, and if I can... Quote from yourself to finish off, Margaret. When when you spoke at the um, the at the two hundred eighty sixth anniversary of Culloden, yes, for the Gaelic Society of yes, it was, it was, was it? yes, and you gave a speech there, and you were talking about Culloden, but what what you said there was. Culloden cast a huge shadow on all our people right across the world. Yes. But as I reminded myself earlier, where there is a shadow, there is also light. You yes. cannot have a shadow without light. And we can walk in that light. That's a nice way it's to do it. It's beautiful. It is. I said that, Gonzalo. <laughs> <you imagine? laughs> but what I think is beautiful well, about that is that what we've spoken about today has come from quite a, a gloomy place and and on a journey and we have come into some light where we've got some sort of hope and reconciliation well I think so and and, um, I think that's when I look at today's world they need the same kind of path yeah more and more and more it's just been a a treat to see you today so thank you so so much My heartfelt thanks again to Margaret Bennett for bringing alive the voice of the girl through these songs and stories. I hope that you enjoyed our conversation. If so, please remember to like, share, review and subscribe to this podcast. The music you hear in the background is taken from my album Urunta, which is available through my website www.deirdegraham.com as well as on the usual streaming platforms. Before I go, I'd like to extend my grateful thanks to Creative Scotland for supporting this project. I look forward to sharing more Gaelic song stories with you and I hope that you'll join me the next time. Chun an Orsing, Bianach Glaive. <laughs>